All right, if you could open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this morning. Um, And so this is the last week of our series called Renovate me. Uh, we've been, this is our fourth week. We've kind of been walking through this, and uh, next week we're going to get back into the book of Exodus. We're going to uh, really hone in on uh, decisions, key decisions that the, uh, the Israelites were going to have to make. They've been given the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments were now going to shape specific decisions that they had to make in their spheres of influence. So we're going to look at kind of how God directed them to do that, but this week we are looking at Renovate Me. And we have been talking again and again about how we long to see our church be something more for our community. So we have this phrase, that phrase that we've kind of adopted for this series is this. What God will change out there starts now with changes in here, right? And I see people making the motions, and I so appreciate that. That shows me that you've learned something, so that's good. Um, so, so yeah, the, the point is God wants to, if God's going to do something different, and we want him to do something different, we have to like start by letting him do something different inside of us, right? So that's kind of where we're at, and we've been using the imagery of renovation, right? An old house needs to be updated. So we've been talking about like unhelpful structures that we have in our lives that might need to die in order for God to bring out his purposes. So we talked about contentment one week, how we need to kind of dismantle contentment, not become too content because there are places and spaces in our lives that Jesus has not yet touched. There are places and spaces in the spheres around us that that people can meet Jesus and we don't want to stop. Uh, We don't want to be content until we see Jesus work in every sphere of influence. So we talked about some of that. We talked about reframing prayer, um, how we kind of just need to let uh, the Lord shape our, our, our prayer lives, how we kind of miss the point of prayer sometime. And, and so this week we're going to, uh, those are all kind of things that we've kind of had to rework or uh, undo. This week we're going to talk about something that needs to be built. So uh, for what it's worth, I, I kind of have three ways that I seek to really get people engaged. Uh, so one of those, uh, as I'm talking up here, right? So one of those ways is I will talk about interesting cultural trends and uh, to kind of get you to go, oh, that's interesting, right? And then you like listen a little bit more to me, right? I have, my other way is I'll talk about my daughter because my daughter is far more interesting than I am. So, uh, so I will talk about her and that'll get you to pay attention a little bit. My third way though is to talk about food. We're gonna go with the third way this morning. We're gonna talk a little bit about food. So, uh, so I need your help confirming what I already know to be true. Uh, so Dairy Queen versus Oberweiss. Dairy Queen versus Oberweiss. Now, don't answer yet because I haven't asked the question. You don't know what I'm going to ask. Without considering price or toppings or your favorite flavors, which I know is really challenging, but without considering those things, I am talking about the basic ice cream. Like the, the basic stuff that ice cream is composed of. If we have to weigh Dairy Queen and Oberweiss against each other, there is one clear winner, and I think you all know who it is. So let's just see by a show of hands, how many think Dairy Queen is the best basic ice cream? Okay, and how many think Oberweiss is the best? How many know Oberweiss is the best basic ice cream? Okay, that's good. That's good. We have, we have some agreement, right? Okay, right, okay. You get it, you get it. Now, 
I love me some Dairy Queen. You all got to know. I, in fact, I can get combinations of flavors at Dairy Queen that I can never get at Oberweiss, right? So I, I'm really pleased by that. But the best basic flavor of ice cream, you might disagree, but is Oberweiss. Okay, why? Well, they make their ice cream in small batches on family-owned farms, and there is 18% buttermilk fat in every bit of ice cream that they make. That's why it's so good. That's why it's the best basic flavor. They focus on making the basic ingredient the best that they can possibly make it, and as a result, their ice cream ends up being better. Now, like I said, you know, DQ can, can provide those options, but the basic product is what matters, and you can actually, like, develop the basic product out from there. Now, Oberweiss might learn something from DQ in the way that they, the options that they give people, right? We could say that, but the important thing is the basic ingredient. So, you know what? There are a host of things that our church could be and do. We could come up with multiple combinations of ways that we could do ministry, and, and there are a host of things that you yourself could do in your spheres of influence and in your contexts for the glory of God and the good of your neighbors, and, and all of that actually has to do a lot with like how the Holy Spirit has gifted you and like what kind of context he's placed you in and the, the kind of people that you're working around and the stage of life that you're in. Like There might be a lot of variety in the ways that this plays out, but there is, I want to submit to you this morning, a most basic character trait that will determine our effectiveness. Like something at the core, like if we are made up of this thing, if we are built of this thing, then that thing, and it becomes like the basic substance of our character, then we actually become most effective in living out the Jesus life in our spheres of influence. So, um, at the same time, like, we attempt to pursue those other things, you know, if we, like, try to, um, you, you say, like, we're going to aim at this strategy, and we try to aim at a particular strategy without this trait, then what will probably end up happening is we will either become ineffective or, like, we could actually do a lot of damage and maybe end up doing more damage than good. So, uh, so I'll submit to you that the most basic substance built by Christ and the Holy Spirit into our lives is humility. Like, if this thing exists, we can become really effective and God can do pretty much anything that he wants. So, so here's what I need you to know as I stand up here talking to you. It's awful to have to talk to other people about humility, <laughs> right? Because this week, I tell you, I have become blatantly aware over the course of, I don't know, say the last three or four weeks, how much I have lacked this in my conversations with other people, in my personal thought life, and like I just see it again and again, and I'm like, okay, you obviously have some building to do, even in me, as I say this. So I tell you things that not just you need to get, I tell you things that I need to get sunk down into my soul. So in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he warns the church about a damaging and dangerous group of people. So in Philippians 3.2, this is what he says. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So these are Jews, uh, the, the dogs that he's talking about. They're Jews who claimed Christ, 
but what, what's happening is that the Apostle Paul, he's going around to different churches and planting new places, and then this kind of group of Jews is kind of following around and arriving like three days after he leaves or, or something like that, and they're kind of telling a different story to people. They're, they're kind of giving people a different idea. They're teaching that Jewish cultural identity, because Paul is going around to Gentile people, Jewish cultural identity must be adopted. So yeah, you've got part of it, like you've got the Jesus thing, but what you also need to do is make sure that you kind of adopt Jewish cultural identity. And so if you don't do these things, then you're not really like a part of God's people, which means you can't say that you're saved, you can't say that uh, God has favor on you fully because there's this peace that you're missing. So this is, this is what these people were going around behind Paul and saying. There's something that you're missing. Even though you have Jesus, you don't quite have all of it. So their problem is this. They focused on outward ritual practices as being the truest expressions of faith. So uh, when he talks about them mutilating the flesh, what he's actually referring to is the practice of circumcision because these people would go around behind Paul to all the churches and essentially insist that if you want to be a part of God's people, what is required is that you would uh, become circumcised. Like that, that you, you don't have any choice. Like you have to do this. This is what is required. You have to adopt Jewish cultural identity in order to become a part of this. And so they focused on their outward ritual practices and they actually took pride in them. Like they, they said, because I identify as a Jew, whether, whether it's the things that I eat, whether it's what I do to my body, because I do these things, I am specially blessed by God and I am kind of like on another level. So like, believing in Jesus kind of gets you here, but the things that I've done get you the rest of the way. That was the kind of idea that they would present. And so what this did, because they took pride in themselves over this, they caused them to berate others to adopt the same things that they practiced. And it caused them to condemn them when they refused to adopt those practices. So Paul grabs this group of people and he says, I have a problem with them. They're dogs, which to a Jewish person, you need to know, is particularly offensive because dogs are what Jewish people called Gentile people. So, so Paul takes this and he turns it back on them and he says, look out for the dogs. And then what he's going to do is he's going to take them and contrast them with the authentic Christian community. So in verse 3, he's going to say, this is what the authentic Christian community looks like and this is how it differs from the dogs. And so what he does is he's going to give us two positive character traits and one negative trait. Uh, And and when we're actually going to take a second to focus on in on the negative trait, because what he's doing is he's saying, you know what, Uh, they might be like this, but that is not what we are like, right? So, So as to set the Christian community apart, he's like, this is what they do, but we don't do that. So he says, true Christians, authentic Christians are different in that we, at the end of Philippians 3.3, put no confidence in the flesh. This is how we are different. So uh, the Bible uses phrases and words that we can sometimes misunderstand. And so whenever you see the Apostle Paul writing about this conceptual idea of the flesh, this is what he's talking about. The flesh is... Human nature, 
human ability and human action, right? So when he's saying, we put no confidence in the flesh, he's saying, we put no confidence in human nature or human ability or human action. So notice the play on words that he has going on here because he says, they mutilate physical flesh and in so doing, place their confidence in fleshly action. So as they mutilate their physical flesh, they place their confidence in their fleshly action. So they were confident that this ritual they performed set them apart and made them special. They were confident, in fact, that it saved them, that it promised them the kingdom of God. And so their sense of moral goodness and rightness, their sense of closeness to God was entirely based on their own action and their own nature and their own ability. Now, this is important to know because this is the prime human error throughout all of history. Like, this is what humans get wrong. We place our confidence in human nature and human ability and human action. And, it, like, if you read scripture, it is the story of humanity from cover to cover. This is what's happening. Human beings are placing more confidence in themselves than they are in God. So, uh, you know, it, it could take the form of this. Uh, you know, we deserve to live this life ourselves. In fact, you know, we are able to kind of do this ourselves. We don't need God to help us do this. We don't actually need to seek his heart and his interests. Uh, We definitely don't need to like fundamentally reorient ourselves to him and what it is that he wants. Uh, We know what's best for us. He, does, he can't possibly know what's best for us. We know what's right for us. We've got this. And so, so at the end of the day, it is we have confidence in ourselves without God. And again and again and again, this is humanity's problem. We have confidence in ourselves without God. So like, let's not just talk about the Bible. Let's talk about you. Like, if you evaluate yourself, if you like, are willing to be honest with yourself at all, then you have to know that in you is the tendency to tell yourself, I know best what is good for me. I know best what is right for me. And we may not actually like verbalize this or even think it explicitly, but it underlies our actions because of our fallen nature. Who is God? to tell me what I should be and do, right? Like that is, that's just the way that we're wired. This is the impulse. And you know what? God, again and again, on the pages of scripture, warns people about this tendency and says things like humble yourself, right? Like uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, which is admit that they don't know what they need and acknowledge that I have what they need, then I will show up, right? And so, so here's how insidious the flesh inside of us is because it can look like confidence in God. Like your confidence in yourself, there is a way to dress it up and make it look like confidence in God. So, so it can take the form of pious action 
and speaking the right language, but at the end of the day, it can be motivated by self-protection and self-promotion and miss the point. And it can actually not be interested at all in adopting God's interest and knowing God's heart. It is just another way for you to protect yourself. And so while it might look like confidence in God, at the end of the day, it's just confidence in yourself, but it's dressed up a little prettier. So uh, God talks about this. In Isaiah 1, 13 and 14, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, what are these things? These are like worship practices that God implemented. Like he told people, do these things if you're going to worship me. But what he recognizes that people are doing is they're essentially walking through with the practices, performing them, kind of putting on an air of holiness, but at the end of the day, they have no interest in adopting God's heart. And so God uses the word abomination to describe this fake sort of putting on of religion. Abomination is like, God's highest word of offense for anything that would come against him. It's the most significant word that he has to say. So he's like placing this on the level of the most heinous sins. If you're pretending, but not actually pursuing what it is that I want, he's like, that is like an abomination to me. He says, new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity. Again, these are all things that God put in place, but because people were pursuing the thing without pursuing what the thing was pointing to, God says it's sin. He calls it iniquity. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. The whole idea is that even religious action, church attendance, uh, financial giving away, donating money, you know, voting in a certain way, like whatever, whatever we might think of, like I do this and because I do this, this is like what God wants. All of that at the end of the day means nothing if it doesn't fundamentally move you to reliance upon and pursuit of the God of your soul, to pursuit of God's nature, to pursuit of God's ability, to pursuit of God's action. Okay, so for what it's worth, uh, confidence in the flesh, it has many names. We call it pride most commonly, but uh, you could call it uh, arrogance, you could call it ego, you could call it hubris, uh, you could call it humanism, right? Because humanism at the end of the day is just a a collective pride to say this is what we as people can become. Uh, You could call it self-trust, right? There are all of these names, but at, at the end of the day, it is the summation of what is wrong with humanity at our core because we believe that we're good without truly seeking God or the things that he wants. So if that is the problem, then that is the problem that needs to be undone. Like, if if that is what exists, if that's what keeps us at odds with God, then that is what has to be resolved. And so Paul comes and he presents the Christian community over and against the dogs as the people in whom that has begun to be undone. Like, this is what the Christian community is. We are the people in whom our pride and our arrogance and our ego have begun to be undone. We become people who are learning to practice the discipline of humility, learning to replace our confidence in the flesh with confidence in God. 
So, uh, so we're going to take a look at how Paul kind of indicates this discipline of humility gets built. So verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So when he says uh, they mutilate the flesh, right, they do the practice, but we are what the practice represents. That was, that's what he's saying. He's saying we don't just perform outward action. We have the fruit of a real relationship with God. And so he says, this is, this is what we do. We worship by the Spirit of God. So I want you to imagine you're in a marriage uh, and that this is the way your spouse relates to you. They uh, spend most of their waking hours with their friends or at work, but don't spend a lot of time with you. You might get a couple of hours a week with them, uh, but that, that's really what it amounts to. Uh, and so, you know what, they, they sleep in your house, and they eat the food that you make, and they say thank you, and they might even do the dishes a couple of times a week just to prevent your wrath from falling on them, because you don't want to, uh, you know, be too angry. And so, this is, uh, imagine that that was the case. Like, what is that relationship looking like? Is it even a relationship? You know, we often, we often miss how revolutionary early Christianity was, because what I just described to you is functionally how all religion worked during the time that Christianity came about. Like you went to a particular place and you did particular religious actions. Uh, you performed them. And Jews and uh, pagans alike all kind of did their particular religious actions. You maybe gave money at the, the temple. Uh, you, you did various things to prove yourself. And then after you get done performing those actions, you kind of go back to your life the way that you were living it. And so Christian worship entirely subverted that kind of concept because the presence of God now doesn't just live in a particular place somewhere, but lives inside of people. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of you. When you confess Christ and say that you believe he is the way, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So now he kind of lays claim to your whole existence. It's not just like a part of your life that you go do. Worship is who you are. It is your whole life. Like, I don't, I don't need to cut my body to prove myself. Like, the cross of Jesus is all the proof to me that I need of who I belong to. And it means that, like, when I witness the sunrise, when I serve my family, when I sacrifice for my neighbor when I meet in the house of a brother or sister to pray with them or worship with them, when I go to the communion table, like every single piece of my life can be expressed as worship to God. I don't go, have to go to a particular place in order to accomplish it. I can actually take every single moment and point that towards God because the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is living in me. So we could say this another way. We say my life is the new altar where I worship God. So how does, how does being aware of this build humility? Well, when I rightly understand worship as not a thing that I do or a place that I go, but who I am, like even arriving at that conclusion requires humility. Right? Because what it says is, I don't exist for me. 
right? Like if my life now is the altar on which I worship, it means that my life is no longer for me. It's for something beyond me. Like it means that I have to admit that I make a really bad God. Like I cannot build an altar of worship on my life to me because I certainly do not have the power to sustain that kind of worship, right? I, I don't have the ability to do all the things that God would do. And, it, and when I worship myself, I ultimately fail myself. Like, and do you know what else happens on altars? Things die on altars. Like when you use the imagery of an altar, you're using the imagery of something being brought forward for a sacrifice. When I say my altar is, uh, is, or my life is the altar on which I worship God, what I'm saying is my life is now the place where I die and Christ comes alive in me. So, um, so if I see all of life as an altar, I more quickly see the things in my life that I kind of am making for me, right? Like if I recognize, like how exposing is it to say all of your life belongs to God? Like your life is the altar. Like how much does that reveal when you go, oh gosh, well, I can look at like five or six different things that currently don't belong to God right now, right? That discovery process, like if you're willing to admit my life is the altar on which I worship God, it will lead you into a discovery process where you just discover how much isn't on that altar and it's an opportunity to take things and make sure that they die so that Christ can live in you. Okay, so, um, so that's the first piece of how humility gets built. Like this discipline of every moment, carrying God with you into every moment and saying at each moment, like this is not about me, but this is about you. This isn't about what I want. This is about what you want. Like this is practicing the discipline of humility. So the next piece of Philippians 3.3, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So the word glory literally means to brag. It means to boast. It means to make much of something. So Paul says the Christian community is unique in that we don't boast in our actions. We don't boast in our cultural identity. We don't boast in our own moral superiority. We don't boast in our accomplishments. We don't boast in our ability. We don't boast in our religious performance. We boast in Jesus. So, like when we say renovate me, we're saying we want Jesus to do his work inside of us. We're saying uh, that we should become nothing and that we should make much of him. And then the, like when Jesus accomplishes this change inside of us, we don't go around and say, hey, look what I did, right? Like we go and we tell people, and this is why we could be excited to tell people about the changes that are happening because you know what? We didn't do it. Like we get to tell people, look at what Jesus did inside of my life. I love telling the story of my parents because, gosh, like you want to talk about a lot of brokenness, a lot of brokenness in their life. And you know what? Jesus did something amazing. These are two of the most beautiful people that you'll ever meet. 
Like, you'll meet them, and you'll love them, and, and uh, you know, they'll, you'll go, they're healthy, and, like, they know how to love people well, and that's not how they used to be, but I love the story to tell uh, how they got from here to here, because it's a story all about Jesus and what he was able to accomplish, right? So, so we get to brag about Jesus. We get to say, look what Jesus did, and, and, and when we talk about, you know, the nearness of our walk with God. Like, we're not bragging in ourselves, or at least we should not be motivated bragging ourselves. We're bragging, like, Jesus made it possible for us to come near. Like, look at what Jesus accomplished. We can have a relationship with God. That's insane. But he did it. So, so again, we're not saying, look what we're doing. We're saying, look at what Jesus has done. So, how does this change how you disciple and influence others? Like, how does this change the kind of relationships that you're building maybe with non-Christians or maybe uh, with even people in this church? How does this change the way that you influence people? So I'm going to give you this principle. If Jesus has already proven everything for you, you don't have to prove yourself. If Jesus has already proven everything for you, you don't have to prove yourself. So you know what? Like, you can go into a discussion and be perfectly, perfectly willing to accept another person's questions and know that you probably won't have to have all the answers to those questions. And you can be okay with that. You know what? Because you don't have to prove yourself. If Jesus has already proven everything, you don't have to prove yourself. Like, you don't need to impress the person that you're trying to influence or disciple with your knowledge or ability because you don't need to prove yourself. Like, who cares what they think of you? You just really care what they think about Jesus. Like, you don't need to get angry when the person that you're trying to influence disagrees with you because you've already been proven by Jesus. You don't need to prove yourself. Like, you don't need validation you don't need this person that you're talking to to prove something to you. And so when all of your boasting is in Jesus, what it does is it sets you free to influence those people out of nothing else but love for them. Right? Because we can have all other sorts of motivations when we go into relationships with people. We can have all other sorts of reasons that we are, are, are seeking to do something. We could seek to validate ourselves. We could seek to make ourselves look good, like whatever it is, right? But if Jesus proves us, we have nothing left to prove, which means that the only motivation that we can carry into that now, we are free to carry simply the motivation of love for that other person and attempting to influence them. Okay, so, um, so let's talk about a cultural reality. Christians have gotten a bad rap in recent years. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but they have. Um, because of our failure to really pursue the discipline of Christian humility. Now, you might go, Christians have gotten a bad rap because the media hates us. And you might not be wrong about that. But you need to know we've revealed something to them that they are just using, right? Like they're just taking advantage of the fault. We have failed to actually, I believe Christians culturally, societally, we have failed to pursue the discipline of Christian humility. Because what do we do? We put our confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in politics and then get publicly angry when our political goals are not met. Uh, we have a, a tendency to 
boast in our own moral superiority and put a lot of confidence in high-ranking Christian celebrities who, lo and behold, end up not really being like the best people in the world and fail, but when we put our confidence in them and we show a public confidence of them, that moral failure has an effect, right? We're putting now confidence in the flesh and that becomes visible. Or we might put more confidence in our financial security than we put in Christ. And when people observe that and we say, follow Jesus, they're like, why? Because he's putting trust in his financial security and he doesn't need Jesus for it. So then the world watches us do all of that and and we tell them things like, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Repent and believe in him. And you know what they hear? They just hear another message of confidence in the flesh. They hear, now that doesn't mean that that's what that message is, but they hear it because all we've shown them is confidence in the flesh. And so when they hear our message, they go, gosh, I guess you're just doing the same thing you've always been doing. And the world, they hear it as another arrogant message. And so they see people who, it seems, place their confidence in politics, in moral superiority, in celebrity leaders, in financial security. And then they tell the world, uh, or sorry, then we tell the world, hey, we've got the market on truth cornered. Like we know what is truth. Why would they be compelled like that? Like why would that be a compelling thing to follow? So what do we do with this reality? Like, what do we do about the fact that they're not interested because we have actually, like, failed to adopt this discipline as a whole in our country? So I've got two things. Number one, I want you, if you're ever in a conversation like this where somebody is like, but look at all of these Christians, I want you to tell them about the Christians you know that are changing because they know Jesus. I I want you to tell them about the changes, the real life, tangible changes that you see happening because of what Jesus is doing. And and we recognize, you know what, at times we do misplace our confidence. But you know what, like, you've got nothing to prove in this moment. You can be honest about your failures and talk about the freedom that Jesus gives you to kind of leave you personally to leave those failures at his feet and more faithfully follow him. And so, You know what? Christians who fail are the precise reason that the world needs a savior who doesn't, right? Like we acknowledge that. And so we just need to be honest about the failure and talk about the good work that we see Jesus doing. The second thing that you need to do is you need to tell them about how at its core, though at times we may appear arrogant, at its core, Christianity runs against the grain of arrogance. It actually obliterates arrogance. Like when we follow Jesus into the deeper life, Christianity goes about the task of undoing human arrogance because like, we say we have no choice but to place our confidence in something outside of ourselves. Like we're not placing our confidence in our ability to develop a, a, a good theological system. We're not dependent on our own ability to do good. We're not dependent even on our religious actions. Like we are dependent on something that is entirely outside of us. So when you say that it's arrogant, I, I understand where you're coming from. But like the people I know who have chosen to give everything to Jesus have done so because they know that they have nothing in themselves to bring to the table. 
And so they pursue Jesus because they know he's their only choice, right? It is like the opposite of arrogance to actually do what Christian scripture calls us to do. We become dependent on Jesus alone. We strive to place our confidence in Jesus alone. And at our best, we are people who boast in Jesus alone. And then we pray that it builds us more and more into the people who don't need to prove ourselves but recognize that we have everything we already need in Jesus. Okay, so what? So what? So uh, I, I am inclined to ask you, like we have to engage disciplines that build humility inside of us. Right? So we have to engage disciplines that direct our hearts. Right? And not you direct your hearts, but like let God direct your heart. And so um, we're going to talk about more and more disciplines that we can engage. I'm going to give you one, and you're used to me saying this, uh, so I'm going to say it a different way. You need to read your Bible, but this is how I want you to read it. Right? Like, I don't just want you to sit down with a, a passage and make sure like, you check the box. This is how I want you to start reading your Bible. I want you to read your Bible as a story about Jesus. So when you are reading the Psalms and you are reading, like, I don't know, David or somebody longing for things to be made right and saying things are disordered right now, I want you to let that direct your heart to Jesus who is coming back to make everything right. Like as you read the story of scripture, you read like the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the, the early Israelite story, and you see what they're heading towards. I want you to see like this whole story as building up to this nation that will be the nation that contains the Messiah who is coming not just to save one nation, but many nations. Right? I, I want you to, I actually do want you to read your Bible, right? Like that's going to be really important. But I want you to read your Bible in such a way that it would fascinate you with Jesus. So with that being said, um, we're going to transition now into a time of communion. And right, so, so before Paul says this about the dogs, um, he gives this amazing passage where he talks about the kind of humility that Christ had. And this is what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, it's because of that death, we talk about your life being an altar. Um, blood had to be spilt on the altar to make any sacrifice on that altar acceptable. And when we come and we say God has made our lives an altar. Blood was spilt to make our lives an altar because we have a savior who humbled himself to the point of death that we might have the opportunity to walk in relationship with God. So we're gonna celebrate communion this morning. You have the cups, we talked about them earlier. 
We practice open communion here, which means that if you are a Christian visiting us from another church, uh, we invite you to participate with us. We are excited to have you participate with us because we believe that we have all been joined together in Christ. If you're not a Christian with us this morning and you are among us, I want you to know this statement. As we take communion, this is an act of stating where our confidence lies. It lies in Jesus alone. As we partake together, we proclaim that Jesus' death is the thing that is the source of our security with God because of what he accomplished. So if you cannot make that statement of confidence this morning, we're really glad that you're here, but I want to encourage you just to, not, to, to set that aside so that you don't make a statement that you actually can't make in good conscience. So, uh, so what's going to happen is I'm just going to take a moment of silence. I want us to reflect. Maybe as we talk about your life becoming an altar, you see God shining the light on places that are maybe out of alignment. And maybe this is an opportunity for you because of what Jesus did to commit those places to him. Maybe, maybe you see uh, ways that you are tending towards arrogance in your conversations with other people. Maybe this is an opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, I, am, I will work to do better. I will work to have a greater vision of you and let you be the one who proves me instead of me having to prove myself. I, I don't know what it is for you, but I want you to take this moment and let Jesus direct your heart to what it is that he wants to do to build more humility inside of you. So would you take a moment of silence with us, please?